Welcome into the 48 Minutes Podcast by Believe, where you stay up to date in 48 on all things NBA. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside my two co-hosts and Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media and World B, Michael Freer. This is episode number 26, the Kyle Korver episode. And tonight, we're lucky enough to be joined by a straight shooter himself, the voice <laughs> of the New York Knicks radio broadcast, Ed Cohen. Ed, thanks for joining the show. And uh, how are you doing tonight? Ross, guys, great to see you. I don't think... Uh... I was nearly as straight a shooter as Kyle Korver. That <laughs> shot was pretty smooth, and it went in a lot in bunches. So, uh, But I appreciate you guys having me on. This is great. Absolutely. Thrilled to be with you here tonight. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get right into things with our opening tip. And, Bruce, why don't you start us off? All right, Ross. Thank you. Blake Griffin of the Celtics has spent a good deal of this season sitting on the bench. Most of his significant minutes have been in spot starts at center in place of Al Horford, when Horford sits out the second night of back-to-back games. In fact, as of Monday evening, Griffin has only played in 31 of Boston's 69 games. But lately, Coach Joe Mazzula has been using Griffin, who turns 34 years old on Thursday, more frequently. Although Griffin's offensive skills and athleticism have declined in the past few years, he's recognized it and is using what he has left in his tank any way he can to help the team succeed and hopefully win a championship, which would be his first. Boston is a talented team, but is more of a finesse team than a physical team. But when Griffin's on the floor, he plays a physical game, setting screens, taking charges, diving for loose balls, keeping the ball alive on the offensive glass. He's far from the high flyer he was in his prime with the Clippers, but he deserves credit for accepting his role, never complaining about his minutes, and giving the Celtics something they'll need if they want to make a championship run. On the practice court, he's been a wise veteran influence. He's also been a great hype man and chemistry guy. Watch him on the bench celebrating every good play and keep an eye on him moving forward, period. Well said there, Bruce. Yes, he's definitely uh, evolutionized his game and definitely had to uh, come up with some new skill sets uh, as he lost some of that athleticism. World B, what do you have for your opening tip here tonight? Uh, Well, for my opening tip, I want to give props to an experiment that the NBA tried a couple years ago that is clearly working, and that is the play-in tournament. As we get down to the nitty-gritty of the season, uh, it's pretty clear after two years that this has uh, achieved probably what I feel like its goal was, is that is to keep an interest in this season all the way through with the regular season. And if you look at it right now, in the Eastern Conference, you have 13 to 15 teams that have – Postseason hopes, I'm taking a little liberty there with the Magic, but they still have some uh, semblance of it. And in the West, you have another 13 out of 15 teams really have uh, legitimate playoff hopes. That's 26 out of 30 teams right now that still have something to play for. And so I think that has done nothing but really help the interest of this uh, of this league. I think coming down the stretch, the way the West is, it flip-flop, we're, we're looking at you know the end of the season – in the same fashion that we look right now at the NFL in terms of playoff seeding, who's in, who's out. It's not going to get the attention that the NFL does right now, but I think in the long run, it probably could. And I think uh, there's a lot of things going on in terms of seeding, in terms of just getting in. I heard the magic after their game uh, Sunday night, uh, Wendell Carter talked about how they're still trying to get in the play on term. That's a goal for them. So I, I appreciate that this, uh, event, this tournament, if you will, is still uh, 
continuing. I hope it's going to last for a long time because it's achieved its goal right now. It's it's made uh, just about every team have postseason aspirations this late in the season. No doubt about it. Ed, how about you for an opening tip? No, thanks, Ross. You know, to piggyback what Michael talked about, you know, the Knicks last night against the Lakers played their 70th game this season. We're at game number 70, and it just made me realize, you know, this is the best time of the year. It's not the playoffs yet, but now's the time where you turn the calendar into March and the push really begins. And as Michael said, the top six, it ain't what it used to be because of the play now. And you get in the top six, you feel so much better about where you stand, having a playoff spot and getting ready for the postseason, having five, six days off. But what you're really seeing in games right now is coaches beginning to try and take away things from their opponents and stars, um, throwing different looks at them, traps, double teams, you name it. And you're looking around the league, the secrets are starting to kind of come away. And the layer's been peeled back. And this is the time where you start to look around and develop your blueprint about how to stop guys. And it's exciting. It's great. Teams are making their push for the playoffs. It's a whole new ball game when you cross the calendar and the plan begins April 11th. But right now, the next month, this is the time where the game plans, the playoff push, teams establish, establishing how they're going to play come playoff time. This is where it really begins, and it's great to be a part of. It should be just a fascinating final 12 games, one month, you name it, uh, around the league. Yeah, and I know we're all curious to kind of get your thoughts on this Knicks team as it they do head into crunch time here. And um, as for my opening tip, I just want to give a quick shout-out to the Beam team. They've now won four of their last five games in the month of March and are 8-2. and two in their last 10. But as re- what has really stood out to me is the recent two victories. They had a home win versus Ed's Knicks uh, in New York's first game of the current road trip on Thursday on TNT. And that was followed up with a big road win in Phoenix on Saturday night. Their strong start in March now has them tied for second in the Western Conference standings with the Memphis Grizzlies. And despite Denver's recent struggles, having lost each of the last three games, The Kings are still five games back from holding the best record in the Western Conference. But seriously, guys, I mean, the Sacramento Kings are for real. And while I predicted Kevin Durant's Suns team to surpass this Kings team in the standings, without KD along for the ride for the rest of the season, I'm going to end up being wrong on that. So well done, Sacramento. And with that, let's let's get right into our first quarter. And Ed, let's go ahead and just talk all things Knicks. Currently, they sit sixth in the East, seven and three in their last 10 games, coming off a big win on the road against the Lakers on Sunday night on ESPN. And uh, just talk a little bit about what makes this team different from years past. Yeah, Ross, I think the first thing is, and it's funny that we say this because they're coming off win against the Lakers. And the previous Sunday, they won a game in two overtimes against Boston without Jalen Brunson, but they're not in this spot without him. And that's been the biggest change from last year, from previous years. I mean, really the last 20 or 30 years is the Knicks have a point guard now for the next four years uh, who they can build around, who makes everybody around this team better. You know, you go to the Clippers game Saturday and it was a tough game for Julius Randle. He forced it. He had to make a lot of tough decisions 
He was five for 24, and the emotions got the best of him in that third quarter. And really, that was the turning point in the game. Clippers had a big fourth quarter. Knicks couldn't really come back. Then you fast forward one day later, and there's still no Brunson, but Randall has a terrific game. And I think if this were last year, it'd be different, you know, in terms of rinsing, repeating, moving on. Uh, it just wasn't there, but it's there right now. And I think the common thread this season is Jalen Brunson's helped this team in so many ways, and it's taken the pressure off the team's stars, their complementary players. It's allowed Tom Thibodeau to try different things. Uh, he's been the common thread. So if I were to say one thing, what's different? It's a point guard you can finally believe in. It sounds like a political campaign, but it's true. Um, yeah. He's been that good, and it's been that exciting to watch these guys come together around him. And he really and has he been the difference maker this year for those guys. I mean, a, a lot, a lot. You know, and Hart, as of late, has been a huge difference maker, too. But Jalen's made everybody better. I mean, that's what his job is. He's just made them all better. No doubt. I mean, Randall is top of the list in terms of guys who've really taken that step from last year because they have a point guard now and there's less responsibility. Uh, but you mentioned Josh Hart, and I, I think something that – gets overlooked a couple of years later is when the Knicks were in the playoffs in 21 and they were the fourth seed, the bench was a huge reason why Derek Rose coming over the deadline changed so much with that group. They were able to run. Uh, they had a veteran who could score, but push the pace. And the bench was a big reason why they made their climb. Now the starting group has been really good this year for the Knicks, but Josh Hart makes the bench that much better the way he defends, the way he rebounds. And here's another wrinkle to it. He can push the pace and get the Knicks in transition in ways they weren't getting once they took Derrick Rose out of the rotation. So you complement Brunson with Hart and that bench group with Emmanuel quickly as the backup point guard. It's a different team. But the, the turning point this year was going to a nine-man rotation back in December, but then adding Hart and putting Deuce McBride on the bench, and he defends and he played a big part against the Lakers when needed but you've got a team right now a solid nine that during that win streak which culminated with that great win in Boston you've got a solid nine guys who you feel really good about when you go into the playoffs World be our Knicks fan here what question do you have for Ed well I I think uh I think what Ed said is uh Right on. I I told you guys in other episodes. I think the the whole uh, Josh Hart coming to New York it solidified the rotation. And if you look at who they have coming off the bench, they're they're benches. They have the best bench in the league in yeah. terms of net efficiency right now. And since the All Star break, it's ridiculous. It's they're outscoring opposing benches by I think six points per hundred possessions. I think only the Hawks are better since the All Star break. So it's been really impressive what he's done and. Uh, I was going to ask Ed here in a second, but he kind of brought up Emmanuel quickly and, and Josh Hart. Those two together, when they're on the court, since Hart has come to the Knicks, they're outscoring. The Knicks are outscoring opponents by almost 12 points per 100 possessions. That's a ridiculous number yeah. to just stop from your bench guys to dominate. Ed, do you see anything in the way those two play together that that causes you know this, uh, I want to say domination, but really impressive play? Well, it's a number of things. I think, number one, the decision-making. Like Both guys 
make really smart decisions. And the way they see the floor, you trust having them both out there. Um, I think nowadays with so many threes, there's a rebounding component for teams with guards especially and wings. You need them to be present and have a knack for knowing where a miss is going. And Hart, he might be the best guy his size, his position in the league at doing that. You know, Tom Thibodeau, when he was with Portland, I think it was actually before the game against the Trailblazers in November, said that Hart's one of the best, if not the best, rebounding guards in the NBA. He had 19 rebounds that night in a win in late November. Uh, but you see it. I, I mean, he's he's so smart and adept at where to be. And the same thing goes for quickly. So it's that component. But also, I think a big difference right now for the Knicks is – Quickly, hard, Grimes I'm going to throw in there. And even when he's in the rotation due to an injury, Deuce McBride, you have four guys at that position right now who you trust as perimeter defenders. Maybe not lockdown guys like a Patrick Beverly, but you trust them in certain spots. And three of them, and even McBride too sometimes, you can get some offense out of them. And that makes a huge difference. You go back a few years ago, even when the Knicks were setting records with their defense, I mean, they led the league in scoring D field goal percentage defense and defending the three. But if you really broke it down in terms of how many really good wing lockdown one-on-one defenders they had, Reggie Bullock, maybe one or two others, you feel a lot better defensively, not just about the whole group, but about those individuals. And I think it's not just the scoring, the rebounding with Hart and quickly off the bench. It's the defense, too, and throwing them in certain situations. There's a lot of versatility right now with this team. And a few minutes ago, you mentioned Derek Rose uh, and how he helped the team when he you know, joined them a few years back. When Jalen went down, I thought maybe D. Rose might get a little bit of run, but he hasn't. In fact, he's only played once in the entire calendar year of 2023. Has it surprised you that he's just basically become a non-person for the most part uh, on the roster? Yeah, I'll say, Bruce, that it it feels strange. It's exciting when the fans do it, but it feels strange now at the Garden where if the team's up big in the fourth quarter with seven, eight minutes to go, they cheer Derek Rose's name. Like that's usually reserved for the guy who's the 15th man on the roster. You know, if it happened to be, you know, Ryan Archidiakono before he was traded, I guess I would understand. But Derek Rose is a, a former MVP. I mean, he's a guy who's been valuable to so many teams in his career. So I think that part feels a little odd. But Tom Thibodeau, I think one of his big strengths is you know where you stand. And as hard as it might have been to go to a shorter rotation in December, Cam Reddish, before that Evan Fournier, Derek Rose, essentially not just losing time, but not having a spot, that was made clear. And there was a great moment in Chicago in December, right a few weeks after he was taken out of the rotation where the Bulls fans were cheering for him. Knicks were up big and he went out there and the place just went nuts and he made a three and it was really neat. And he was honest then saying, look, I'm here. They want me. I'm not rushing to go anywhere else. Um, But it's pretty clear. Look, he was playing 13 minutes a game before he was taken out of the rotation. Um, 
he's not getting in anytime soon. And to even ramp up to be effective would take a while. So you miss him because when he does great things, it's, it's so much fun to watch. But I think Tom Thibodeau made that move in December and everyone was on the same page as to why. I think it speaks volumes about Derek's character and what he brings to this team in the locker room, on the practice court, the fact that they didn't just let him go and quite a luxury for the Knicks to have such a veteran presence like Derek Rose, a well-accomplished NBA player that's just accepted his role and wants what's best for the team. Um, So definitely think a lot of credit should go towards Derek in that regard. Uh, Ed, I wanted to talk a little bit about Isaiah Hartenstein. He was a guy that was super impressive last year with the Clippers. I was actually surprised the Clippers let him go as they kind of had a hole at their five-man position outside of having Zubak uh, until they got Plumlee at the this year's trade deadline. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Hartenstein, especially coming on here as of late? I mean, he got off to kind of a, a weird start in New York trying to get settled in with the with the new uh, system uh, that Tom Thibodeau has, and, and now he seems to be – gelling just fine and, and, and bringing a lot of energy off that bench. No, it's a great point, Ross, because you look at his time with the Clippers and his game evolved. I mean, he was the last roster spot, the last guy to make the roster out of training camp. I think he beat out Harry Giles with the Clippers and it turned into a great year. Um, and it was his passing and initiating that really helped them throughout the season with that bench group. But towards the end, He was taking a lot of threes. I think he was 14 of 30 from three with the Clippers. And Ty basically said, listen, you're confident in your shot. It helps our spacing. And that added something for them. So he came to New York. And I think the comparison people made during training camp was, oh, Tom, you've got a Joaquin Noah type, right? Uh, Someone who can handle the ball and get others involved and maybe stretch the floor a little bit. And to your point, that wasn't the case right away, but something changed. They actually asked him, Hey, when did things begin to turn for you? He had a block of Donovan Mitchell to secure a win in mid to late January. And that gave him a real boost in confidence. And and I think it, it showed, listen, You're expected to be a presence, a rim protector, and a rebounder. The offense will come, and if it doesn't, you still add great value to that second group. And he's thrived. You know, he had 10 rebounds against the Lakers, didn't score, and he was a plus 19. When he has at least 10 boards, the Knicks are 11-3. and It doesn't have to be the scoring, but when Mitchell Robinson's on the bench, maybe he's in foul trouble, maybe it's a matchup like Anthony Davis, where you need someone who's a little more physical and sturdy, like he fills a huge void in that regard. And he's been active. And uh, for a guy who's played every game this season, he and Randall haven't missed a game. Uh, You're starting to see it. He's more and more valuable with each game, especially, you know, this time of the year where you're going down the stretch and you need a physical presence on the glass. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that, Ed. I think, you know, one of the biggest strengths for the Knicks is just the numbers that they have. You know, we talked a lot about the Pelicans early on this season with the depth they have and uh, certainly think uh, New York's got a consistent depth that they can turn to. And Hartenstein's a big piece of that and and, and been huge for the Knicks during this uh, recent win streak. And uh, Bruce, you had a question for Ed. Yeah, this is a question more of a personal nature as opposed to about uh, the Knickerbockers team. Ed, 
I mean, there have been some incredibly legendary broadcasters in your position as the voice of the Knicks on radio. Marty Glickman, Marv Albert, Mike Breen, and now a kid from Westchester. <laughs> How many times a day do you pinch yourself about having this job? And B, is there an extra burden to excel given your predecessors? See, I, I pinch myself usually twice in the morning, three times <laughs> in the afternoon. No, I'm only kidding. Um, <laughs> It's a great question, Bruce. You know, we actually broadcast from the Marty Glickman Memorial Radio booth at the Garden. So every time you're up there for those 41 games, I mean, it's right there shining and you realize just how special a seat it is. You know, it's it's less a burden. But if you were to say, is it humbling? Like, oh, yeah, it's I mean, look at the chair and those who sat in it over the years. And you think about just the evolution of basketball on the radio like marty glickman created the vernacular and the terminology and the way it was executed and he taught marv albert who as the voice of the knicks in the 60s and beyond i mean his call of game seven in 1970 is you find on youtube i mean it changed how many new yorkers absorbed the professional game and there's a generation after that Mike Breen, Ian Eagle, um, that age group that listened to Marv. You know, I'm younger than them. I watched Marv on the NBA Finals, on Knicks Rockets, the Jordan years, you name it, while also listening to the guys who followed him and idolized him who were older than me. So that sound, I think, has been passed down from generation to generation. And there is a cadence and a delivery in a way that it's all absorbed uh, that's special and unique and just, again, very humbling to even think about being a part of. But, no, those guys, I mean, they're legends. And, you know, on a personal level, seeing up close how Mike does it, you know, Mike Breen does it, and um, – the amount of finals he's called. I mean, you think about 20 years of NBA basketball and the Ray Allen three-pointer, um, the Lakers championships, LeBron James, the Cleveland comeback, the Warriors. I mean, that's history. And there's been one person who's documented it on network TV and, of course, on MSG with the Knicks. And to watch how he does it up close professionally, the way he treats people, interacts with those around the league it's it's a humbling seat to sit in but at the same time I do pinch myself because it's just a joy to be around him and observe how you know one of the best to ever do it uh, approaches it every day that's real awesome and yeah I mean my my one year with the Knicks too Ed being alongside you guys and you know sitting on the bus with you Walt Clyde Frazier Mike Breen and just getting to know just such a great group of talented uh, legendary broadcasters and uh, you're definitely in quite the seat being with the New York Knicks um, for our second quarter here. want to thank you for joining the show here tonight. Wanted to take a quick look at the rest of the Eastern conference with you and just kind of looking at the, the teams ahead of the Knicks to keep this Knicks themed who, who, you know, in the standings, what are, what are one or two teams uh, that you'd probably want to face the least. Who, who's impressed you, and who do you think would be the biggest matchup scare for the Knicks in, in a playoff series? Well, I'll, I'll go with two. Um, okay. Now I'll eliminate 
because the Knicks have beaten the Celtics three times, which maybe it should be the opposite because you figure it's going to balance out in the playoffs. But for whatever reason, and it took a couple of overtimes, but there's something about how they match up with the Celtics that I think is a little different than the Bucks and the Sixers. You know, Milwaukee, the games were close at the Garden. They played them twice, and it's been a while. Um, and I don't think Middleton played in the last two that we saw in Milwaukee, but there's just something about the Bucks when they're at their peak and they're healthy with their depth and the defense. I mean, Giannis, Lopez, and Holiday, that's just – that's jarring. That's going to be yeah. tough for any team. And I think after – I've heard this said a few times, after last year and not getting home court, the mission to get that top seed, have a game seven on their home floor, if they get there, if that's the case – and if Middleton's where he is and the bench is complete and they're they're a whole, they're gonna be tough to beat. Tough to beat. And then I think, you know, conversely, Philadelphia, there's just something about for Joel Embiid to go against the young center Mitchell Robinson and just to see the other parts starting to really build and develop. Um, I think they struck gold early in the season when DeAnthony Melton saw more minutes when Harden was out and when Maxi was out because they found something with him starting, bringing his defense that adds a new element to who they are. And then bringing Maxi off the bench is just a whole nother category. And if Tobias Harris can kind of become the guy who maybe they envisioned he'd be obviously not as a lead person with Embiid and Harden, but certainly as someone who's going to be needed uh, in big playoff moments, uh, they're dangerous, and I think those are two teams right now taking nothing away from Boston, but those are two teams that matchup-wise would would be a haul for the Knicks. I would, I'd like to ask you about that other team in New York, which I know you're probably contractually restricted from saying too many nice things about the Brooklyn Nets, <laughs> but uh, uh, after the trades that sent Irving and Durant out of Brooklyn, I, I felt Sean Marks did a really great job retooling the team with the, with those deals. I mean, they were 32 and 22 when Durant was traded, and I've said that I believe they'd hold on to the sixth spot if they went 14 and 14 the rest of the way, and so far they're seven and seven. Uh, and they're actually fifth in the East. What do you, what do you make of Brooklyn and and the job that Jacques Vaughn did, basically running a training camp halfway through the season, integrating all these new guys and getting that team to play? I mean, look on Sunday they had a really gutsy win over Denver on the road. What yeah. what's your take on Brooklyn? What a job he's done. I think the coach of the year has kind of evolved. Mike Brown, I think, is the front runner. Joe Missoula for a while, and maybe he's in the discussion. Tom Thibodeau and Jacques Vaughn, there was that little lull after the trades where you thought, okay, let's see where this goes. But I think they're, he's right back in the discussion. But, Bruce, I think the, the amazing thing is they acquired so many guys at the deadline. Cam Johnson, Finney Smith, Mikel Bridges. Like, they're coaches and GMs around the league who would kill to have one of these guys on their team to kind of – compliment everybody else and be the last piece. You know, Royce O'Neal, who they had at the beginning of the year from the Jazz, like there's some great wing defenders and guys who can shoot on this roster who, you know, have come together and it might be crowded in spots, but it's working. And I think a lot of that is you have Dinwiddie, who can be a bit of a lightning rod, but when he's on, 
and getting others involved, he's really good. And Bridges, I, I saw this note, I think in his first four plus years with the Suns, and he's never missed an NBA game. I think he had three 30-point games. With Brooklyn, he already has six. And, and the thought was, with all these wings coming in, at some point, one of these guys, if they take a step and really become that go-to scorer, they could be pretty good. I think Bridges is the guy right now. Dinwiddie has it in his bag as well. But you have to give them credit. I, I'm just relieved because the Knicks played them twice uh, after the trades and beat them both times at the Garden. So at the very least, they don't have to worry about them anymore. But, yeah, it's it's going to be a fight uh, with one loss separating them, you know, for the fifth spot and just to stay in 5-6 and avoid any pressure from Miami or whomever else to to fall into the play-in. And, Ed, uh, one quick question before we let you go here. You know, being around the city, um, just tell us a little bit about just the buzz and, and even just inside the garden on a night-to-night basis with the team that they currently have on the floor. What's that been like? And uh, just just kind of describe what it feels like uh, on a nightly basis in there. You're yeah, Ross, I, you know, it's funny. The last couple of homestands, there's been kind of a building theme that this team – taking nothing away from the team that won 54 games in 2012, 2013. That was a fun group, but it was an older group. And you knew that was kind of a flash in the pan year for the Knicks, given the ages of some of the guys. But this team's young. You know, Tom Thibodeau mentioned yesterday, Julius Randle is just entering his prime. And the other guys are younger. He's 26, 27. So there's a real future with this group right now. And they play hard. A trade boosted them. Josh Hart is 10 and three as a Knicks since he came over. Um, They're young, they're fun. And I think the homestand after the all-star break, uh, they came back and it was almost this coronation, like a hero's welcome. There was a spirit in the building. Whereas, you know, a lot of times there's a buzz and it's for who's playing the Knicks, what opponents in the building. It was to watch this team play and watch them play together. And, And I think, the narrative's changed in, in that regard. There's such excitement to watch what this team can do. And there's still 12 games left, and they have six games at home. But I think you you look at this last stretch of home games, uh, the spirit in the building, fans are really excited. And if the Knicks are healthy and you've got a first-round series where they've really got a chance, uh, it, it's going to be as we expect, playoff basketball at the Garden and – we all know there's just nothing like it. Absolutely. Well, Ed, we've reached the halftime buzzer, and we certainly appreciate you being our guest on tonight's podcast. And uh, we wish you and the rest of the Knicks all the best of luck uh, the rest of the season. And with that, we'll go ahead and take a quick break and come back with our second half. But thank you, Ed. Thanks, guys. And we're back with our third quarter, and we are going to get things shifted over to the Wild West, where things stay just that, wild. And uh, Bruce, can you help paint us a better picture of what's going on in the Western Conference standings right now? I don't know if it's getting close to like hitting the panic meter time in Denver. I mean, they've lost three straight games, although they built themselves up a really, really nice cushion. They're still 
four games in front of uh, Sacramento uh, and uh, and uh, Memphis. But uh, it was really interesting to see them really kind of get their butts whooped by New Jersey, New Jersey, by Brooklyn on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I and I still call it the Staples Center too. So sorry, yeah. I'm stuck in a time warp, you know. But uh, Denver, there's something there that I'm not quite feeling right about at the moment. I mean, I have, I have a, you know, Jokic, of course, is brilliant every night. Okay. I mean, he had a triple double on Sunday. He has 27 triple doubles out of 60 games this year. I mean, those, that's just like sick stuff. But what's the deal with Michael Porter Jr.? And maybe Michael, you might have some thoughts on it. He played 23 minutes against Brooklyn. He had 23 points, three rebounds, four assists, no foul trouble. In the last three games that were all losses, his minutes have just been down. I mean, 23 against Brooklyn, 20 against uh, uh, the Spurs, and 24 against the Bulls. What What's the deal with Michael Porter Jr.? Are he and Michael Malone having an issue? I mean, does anyone have a clue here? I, I really can't understand him. He's having a, a solid season all around. I mean, he's shooting over 40% from three. That You want the complimentary players to go around uh, uh, Jokic, and he's one of them. And he, I mean, you know, he had that that uh, huge dunk a couple games ago, and got uh, got teed up for, it and got eventually got tossed from the from the game for it and stuff. So that's one reason why his minutes are down. Um, that that situation, but yeah, I mean, I he's going to be a guy if they really want to get to a championship. He he's got to be one of those guys. They, you know, you talk about Aaron Gordon is another guy that's that's Russ's. Uh, yeah. Russell well, he was. Yeah. He was. All right. <laughs> These are two of the two of the guys they need going forward. To you know, how can you have a guy go for a triple double with thirty points and twenty boards and lose? I mean, just yeah, that's on everybody else. I but I, and it's the question surrounding this team the whole season since they got off to this great start. It's like, well, who else is going to help them? Do they have the horses? At first, it was their defense. Well, their defense is getting better. It's not elite yet, but it's getting better to go along with that offense. And now it's, you know, can Contavious Caldwell Pope come through for them? He has the experience in the playoffs. Can Michael Porter Jr. stay healthy? Well, he's been healthy. Now he's not getting minutes for whatever reason. And Aaron Gordon has been rock solid. When he's on the game, when he's on his game, we talk about Jokic all he wants. They're really good when he he and uh and uh when Gordon and Jokic are on their game, they're really hard to beat. Yeah, I've been uh, really kind of puzzled with the Nuggets here as of recently and kind of now second-guessing whether or not I should be giving them the credit that they so rightfully deserve being a topic of, of the Western Conference with uh, their standing. But at this time, with the last three games, especially that, that loss against Brooklyn, I mean, maybe maybe we were right. Maybe they weren't the solidified number one seed. But I'm going to throw out the Uno reverse card, go right back to you, World B., Let's talk about a team a little further down the standings. Another team that a lot of people didn't think they were getting the credit they should deserve in the Golden State Warriors. You know, we kept hearing the, the Warriors are coming. Here comes Golden State. Don't worry. They're going to turn it on. Yes, they beat the Milwaukee Bucks without Giannis in, a, in an overtime game. But prior to that, they had lost three straight. What are your thoughts on Golden State? And, uh, you know, ha have you started to, to believe 
more in them or, or are you still a doubter in, in what they can fully accomplish this season? Well, they have the pieces. I mean, the, they have the main core that's never been in question. Uh, however, we talked about a few episodes ago. They're one of the best teams at home. They're one of the worst teams on the road. Defensively, it's unbelievable the gap between them, how they play at home, and how they play on the road. And that hasn't changed since we let, talked last. They go on a five-game win streak. Everybody's excited about it. But then you look at the schedule while well, they're all at home. The minute they go on the road, they lose three in a row. They get Milwaukee at home over the weekend, they win that one. So it's until I see them go on the road and actually get something done, they have a humongous road trip coming up. Uh, by Wednesday, they start playing five games and they go to the Clippers. Then they got to go out uh, and play, well, the Hawks, who we don't know yet what they're going to be. The Grizzlies, we hope, you know, you hope for the Grizzlies' sake they get it together. And, you know, then you get the Rockets and the Mavericks, and you would think you could get three wins out of there. But with the Warriors, you don't know anymore. Yeah, and not to mention that they got the Suns tonight, too. Sorry, Bruce. Go yeah. ahead. No, no. No, no. Um, I, I was going to mention that. Yeah, they get the Suns, and as, as World B mentioned, they get that five-game road trip. But then, you know, when they're back home after that road trip, they have a couple of pretty tough home games. They're going to have um, Philadelphia. And they're going to have Minnesota, and then they're going to be back on the road, and they're going to have to play at Sacramento and at Denver. So they've got a pretty tough schedule ahead of them. I mean, I'm not saying they can't do it, but uh, yeah, they they've got some tough times in front of them. Hey, Ross, I just want to say one other thing. What do you think of World Bee's hat? That thing's that's that's pretty fly right there. It's looking real sharp. I love the gray colorway. I know that the, that's what we all got and, and all selected there. So yeah, I hope our listeners check out shop.believe.com and, and go ahead and check out on getting their own fresh swag from the 48 minutes podcast. Uh, looking good there, will be. Well, it's worth a lot more than the head it sits on, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well said there. <laughs> Bruce, what's your take on this? Uh, the 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 standings up top. I'm kind of bouncing around here because it is the Wild West, so we're going to keep yeah. it wild. I mean, if it came down to a decision today, who do you think's a better team, the Memphis Grizzlies or the Sacramento Kings? I would say, uh, as of now, and of course, you know, John Morant's not playing, so sure. you know that makes it a little easier decision. But I think even with John Morant, I'm really liking Sacramento. The one thing that concerns me about Sacramento is that because they play such an upbeat game and lead the league in scoring and, you know, field goal percentage as a team, whatever, their defensive numbers don't look that great. I think some of that's a function of just their style. I mean, I remember back in the 80s when the Lakers were a great team, they gave up a lot of points, but they were a good defensive team. They just gave up a lot of points because they scored a lot more. But what I really like about Sacramento, and I've said this a few times, um, they're a great road team. They got one of the best road. They have the best road record in the Western Conference. They're 19 and 13. All right. And there's a few teams in the East that have better road records than them. You know, Boston does. Uh, Milwaukee does. Um, I believe Philadelphia does. And the Knicks might as well. Um, so I really like a team that can win on the road. Um, I wish they were a little bit tighter on defense, but boy, you know, when, when they bring Malik Monk in off the bench, that's just like a shot of adrenaline and, yep. you know, 
bucket getter extraordinaire. So I'm really, I'm really liking Sacramento there. I, I'm, I'm a little shocked though that Mike Brown, who's made his reputation in the NBA as being a great defensive coach, <laughs> maybe, maybe he's got something that he's working on for the playoffs. Because as Ed had said earlier, and I'm Ross, you might have said it as well, the coaches hold back a little bit. They don't want to show you everything they got going into the playoffs. So maybe he's got, maybe Mike Brown's got something defensively we haven't seen yet. And I like sack over, over Memphis. All right. And uh, world B as we take a look here at the play in tournament, as it stands now at the time of taking uh, of taping, the golden state warriors have a, a half game lead to that sixth spot to stay out of the play in. But then when you look at the play in, with Minnesota, Dallas, Utah, the Lakers, and even New Orleans. I mean, of those five teams, I mean, which would be your four to get in? Uh, honestly, I, I'll say this. I I think the Lakers are playing. I, I was impressed with how they played uh, on Sunday despite getting the loss or whatever to the Knicks. I think that team, when they get everybody healthy, are going to be tough to beat. And or play just well enough to get in, and I'm not giving up on the Pelicans just yet. They got to get healthy, but I'm I'm not giving up on them. They just CJ McCollum is starting to shoot the way he's supposed to shoot, and if Ingram's out right now or he's been out, if he can come back, Trey Murphy the third there had an unbelievable game the other night. Not just scoring 41 points, but the distance at his three pointers was ridiculous. If he had, I think nine threes, and I think eight of them were 27 feet or beyond. It was really impressive. It was a, a ridiculous uh, performance by him. So I'm not giving up on the Pelicans. Uh, if I had to take two teams to get out, I'm, not, I'm still not buying the Thunder, and it'd probably be at this point uh, the Jazz, even though I'm a big uh, marketing fan. I've told you guys all, all season how much I love the fact that the Jazz – we're supposed to be one of those teams going in the tank like the Rockets and the Spurs, and yet here they are at 500 or just around 500 uh, battling for a playoff spot or play-in tournament spot. And, Bruce, what's your your take on the uh, play-in pitcher out west? Well, you know, it's funny. I I feel like we're going to be seeing some, some better days ahead for the Lakers. I think they're going to move on up. Um, I remember I said when we were talking about this a few shows ago that uh, even when LeBron James went down, I was expecting them to play well and possibly rise as high as eight or maybe even seven. Uh, I still feel that way. Um, I have been super impressed with the way they've retooled on the fly this year. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, I mean, D'Angelo Russell's been a big, big difference maker for those guys. And, I always thought of D'Angelo Russell as kind of a knucklehead. Uh, but, you know, with LeBron not playing, D'Angelo Russell has really grabbed the opportunity to have a lot more touches and more scoring. I'm wondering when LeBron comes back, will LeBron adjust his game to some of these guys who have done well? I don't think no. he's able to. I don't think he wants to. But I think he should. And if he does... He's basically saying, all right, AD, this is your team now. And I don't know if his ego can really sort of handle him being Robin to Anthony Davis's Batman. What do you think, that's Ross? 
That's a big ask. I'm not, I would not be uh, putting many cards in, in that bucket as far as him adjusting his game at all. I think LeBron uh, is going to be the alpha in that situation. And that's going to be interesting because it's going to stir everything that's working right now. And, and it's going to shake things a little bit. So how will those guys around him adjust yet again? I mean, I just feel like the adjustments that the Lakers have had to make all season uh, has been a dime a dozen. I mean, AD goes down. They got to adjust. LeBron's out. They got to adjust. They trade Russ. They've got to adjust. Like they've been making adjustments all year long. And that's definitely made it a tough task on head coach Darvin Ham. But I'm in agreement with you both as far as the Lakers are concerned. I think they're for sure going to be in the play in tournament. And they're definitely the one team in the West that I would not want to face as another play in team because once LeBron comes back, we all know anything can happen there. So. Should be fun to continue to monitor. And uh, with that, we'll get right into our fourth quarter here. And it is mailbag time for listener-submitted questions. Our first question comes in from Johnny. And Johnny writes in, The Hawks have been better since their coaching change, but I'm sure Quinn Snyder hasn't had the chance to actually implement much of the things he wants to do with the minimal practice time. What can a coaching change realistically change midseason besides just the vibes? Bruce? Well, I think the vibe is is the number one thing because generally when you get rid of your coach partway through the season, things aren't going well. And certainly this late in the season, you, you know, you're just desperate to get a spark. When Jacques Vaughn took over the Nets, not exactly midseason, but probably after, I forget how many games, it was probably around a dozen games into the season, whatever. He did an excellent job. He's done an unbelievable job coaching. And I think what we've seen with him, and I mentioned it a little bit when I asked Ed Cohen a question a little bit earlier, when 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 there's so many changes on the team, whether it's a coach or whether it's a bunch of players coming in, it's like you have to have training camp in the middle of the season. And that's not easy to do. I mean, the players got to adjust to a new Quinn Snyder system. It's going to be different than Nate McMillan. So that will take some time. But he is a good coach. Uh, clearly, he's letting Trey Young do his thing. I mean, you know, their defense, I mean, the, 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 the gentleman who sent that question and said the Hawks have been better marginally, I wouldn't say there's yeah. been a major improvement there. Right. But, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, look, on Monday night, they gave up 76 points to Minnesota in the first half. Okay. So, you know, there's a long, there's a lot of work left there to do for Quinn Snyder, but he will be a breath of fresh air, I suppose. World, have anything to add on the Hawks? I think you're going to see his impact during the offseason and, and into next season. Uh, we mentioned at the time of the hiring, the Hawks are one of the teams that takes the fewest amount of threes uh, in the league per their uh, total percentage of field goal attempts. And in his last two seasons with the Jazz, Utah was number one in both. The Almost 50% of their shots came from three. They're, they're outscoring opponents right now from two-point range. They're getting beat on the threes. They're getting beat at the free-throw line. So that's not really the Quinn Snyder way that we've known it for uh, recent years. So I would say you wait until the offseason. Uh, I think, once again, I think it's a good hire. I think he's a really good coach. I think he's proven that. And the the impact will come during the offseason and in the uh, beginning of the next season. 
I would agree with you there. This is such a tricky situation. I mean, we talked about Bruce, you talked about Jacques Vaughn. Of course, he was on Nash's staff, a part of the coaching staff. Same with Mike Missoula, you know, like this is an entirely different coaching philosophy that's come into Atlanta. I'm sure the Hawks organization understands that. So I think there's just minimal changes you can do. Obviously try to get guys different touches and better spots to make them be successful. But Overall, I don't think we're going to see the impact this year. But this, this was not a hire for this season. This was a hire. You don't right, hire yeah. Quinn Snyder to fix something in season. You hire him to fix it for the next three or four or five seasons. So that's what this is uh, looking towards. Well said. There will be. And uh, I want to thank Johnny for the question there. And our, our second question is a pretty good one here. James sent in a great question asking, can any of the current playing teams in either conference legitimately win it all world B we'll start with you uh no okay <laughs> short answer uh I you know it's it's weird a two of the, uh, the teams in the West there's nobody in the east that I think is a legitimate title contender at a playing tournament in the west I wouldn't say so but you know what by tomorrow it could be golden state that falls into that yeah. mix and then you gotta wonder well could they do it um the Clippers are not far behind from being in that spot with one bad week. And we talked about the Lakers and we talked about, you know, I'm not giving up on the Pelicans. I don't think they're title contenders, but I don't see it as happening. I maybe if the Warriors or the Clippers were to fall down with a bad week, you know, have a couple of losses in a row, that's all it takes to become a play in tournament member. Then yeah, maybe they could be it. But other than that, the teams that are, presently uh, constructed in the standing? No, I don't see it. Bruce? Other than the Lakers, no. Okay. I would say the Lakers would be my team of choice if I had to pick one. Of course, LeBron, anything can happen. But And they're not in the playing tournament today. Yeah. Who, the Lakers? Yeah, they're tied, but they're on the outside they're looking tied. in. Or they were. Yeah, yeah. There's four teams at 33 and 35, but – the Lakers are one of those, I believe, that are out along with uh, – I can't remember the other team. There's two that are the in, Pelicans. two that are out. Oh, Pelican. Duh, I just mentioned yep. them. So, yeah, those two actually are would be my two choices to make the playing tournament. <laughs> they're, they're on the outside sitting in. But when you're four teams at 33 and 35, you know, it's it's a crazy uh, – you know, check, check back with us in an hour and we could have something different. Yeah. Hey, we have some breaking news here in the NBA and the association. Ooh. Jason Tatum – Missed a layup at the buzzer, and the Celtics lost to the Houston Rockets 111 no Missed no a layup way. at the buzzer. Wow. What Would a tied the game and sent it to overtime. Awful. Unbelievable. Awful, awful, awful. What is going on? That's a game they could have easily got a bad loss at home back. I mean, you got to take advantage of those on the schedule. And, uh, wow. Maybe they do want that two seed. By the I'm way. Starting to, is- I'm starting to wonder. Yeah. This is this is further proof, and we t- I talked about this a few episodes ago. This whole idea of going in the tank and the you know, the Spurs and the Rockets and the Pistons are thinking about the number one pick or being one of the top two. That's all fine and dandy. That's an organizational thing. The guys who are on the court, the coaches who are there when the game starts, they're not th- tanking's not on their idea. They're they're trying to play all out, and they're trying to go for it. And it's you know. The organization puts a bad product on the court, but the players are still playing all out. They're not going through. You know, 
you think most of the time. They're not going through the motions. They want to play. They want to win. And these are young teams, the Rockets, the Pistons, the Orlando Magic. They, they want to win. They taste a little bit of success. They want to keep that going. Nobody wants to sit there and, and get their butts beat in every night. They got some pride to them. So, I, you know, while well, disappointment and panic button in Boston maybe, you know, kudos to the Rockets for playing yeah. hard. And, oh, by the way, that drops Boston into a tie in the loss column with Philadelphia. So it's not wow. even just that they're they're behind Milwaukee. They're in danger of being passed by Philadelphia. And that could be helping Joel Embiid's MVP case if they were to able to uh, move up in the Eastern Conference standings before the end of the season. So I uh, want to thank Johnny and James for their questions on tonight's show. Uh, real quickly here, we'll get to my best bet section. And tonight I want to tell you about my favorite Phoenix Suns same game parlay. This is one I pretty much take almost every night once KD's been out. I've, I've been taking it most nights here, and uh, here's how it goes. I take Devin Booker for 25 points. He scored 25 in each of the past five games. I take Chris Paul for eight assists. CP3 has dished out eight-plus assists in four of the past five games. And in the only game he finished with seven assists, CP3 had six assists by halftime. So I'm thinking that one was a fluke. I like Josh Akogi with one three-pointer made. He's hit at least one three-pointer in three of the last five games. In order to get some plus value, you got to throw in a couple risky plays there, but I like Akogi. Uh, Torrey Craig, you can get him to just score two points, and he has scored two points in nine of his last ten games. And uh, if you put those all together, you've got plus money on the board to double up on your bet. So that is tonight's best bet uh, for tonight's segment. And with that, Bruce, I'll let you lead us off here with your final thought. You mentioned assists a moment ago. Uh, yep. And with uh, – nice segue, Ross. Thank you for the tee <laughs> up there. With all of the numbers the analytics people track, they need to add one more category. It's a travesty that assist-worthy passes that lead to shooting fouls don't exist in the world of the NBA. I call them hidden assists. And while we track hockey assists in basketball, we ignore perfect passes that lead to free throws. It makes no sense. It, it's something that should be measured. Here's how hidden assists would work. If the hidden assist leads to two successful free throws, that's 1.0 hidden assists. If it leads to a two-shot foul and the shooter makes one of two free throws, that's 0.5 hidden assists. And if they go 0 for 2 from the line after this beautiful pass, no hidden assist is awarded because no points are scored. This will probably be a category that favors pocket passes and action near the hoop where there's more defensive traffic on field goal attempts. I think tracking them and making them a real stat would be a service to coaches, to players, and to fans. Interesting idea there, Bruce, and I think I'm behind it. I think that would be fun to track and kind of see who's not getting the credit they deserve. World B, what's your final thought? Well, for my final thought, with uh, Sunday being the selection uh, of the NCAA tournament teams, I decided to fill out my own bracket using NBA teams, my own region of 16 teams. And to make it real quick and and make this go fast, uh, the number one seeds I had overall were Milwaukee, Boston, Denver, and Philadelphia. Uh, The two seeds... For the regions, I had the Sacramento Kings, the Suns, the Grizzlies, and the Cavaliers. 
And then as three seeds, I had the Clippers, the Nets, the Warriors, and the Knicks. And then to wrap it up, the four seeds or the final four in the NBA tournament, it was Minnesota, the Heat, the Lakers, and the Mavericks. And my first four out, I selected as the Hawks, Pelicans, Thunder, and Jazz. So, you know, it was just a lot of fun to make up an own bracket. I had uh, my 1-4 matchups in the East were Boston against Minnesota. And my 1-4 matchup in the Midwest was Milwaukee versus Miami. And then in the other regions, uh, Philadelphia versus L.A., 1 versus 4. And then Denver versus Dallas, 1 versus 4. So it was just a fun way to break it down and see what the – NBA would look like if you had to break it up into a, a region. So uh, feel free to complain like everybody does to Joe Lenardi if anybody has any problems. And that, my friends, is not World B's final thought. That's World B's one shining moment right there on the 48 <laughs> Minutes Podcast. <laughs> see what well you did done. there. Well done. <laughs> and uh, for my final thought, I want to talk about CJ's revenge. World B, you had brought it up a little bit earlier with the shooting numbers, but The Pelicans have now defeated the Blazers twice within these past two pivotal weeks as both teams look to secure a spot in the play-in tournament. It started with a 121-110 road win in Portland where CJ poured in 24 points along with seven boards and seven assists and then would follow up with a 127-110 home win on Sunday night where CJ dropped 22 points, had five boards, and also dished out 11 assists while also getting some help from second-year man Trey Murphy III, who had a career night scoring 41 points on 13 uh, 13-20 13 shooting and uh, connecting on 9-14 of 14 triples that he attempted. I mentioned last week that this was a big week for the Blazers, who now find themselves a full two games back from the rest of the play-in pack. And C.J. McCollum's Pelicans played a big part in their 2-5 and five start in the month of March. I started the show telling you I was wrong about the Suns passing the Kings in the standings, and I'm here to close today's show to tell you I was wrong about Dame's Blazers. They are done. And with that, that will do it for this edition of the 48 Minutes Podcast by Believe. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with you on Thursday uh, to make sure you're up to date in 48 on all things around the association. Have a great night, everybody.